in this episode, we're going to be reviewing the neuromusculoskeletal disorders for exam three. We're going to be talking about multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, myosynthia gravis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and spinal cord injuries. And we'll get into pathophysiology, signs and symptoms, diagnostics, nursing care, and collaborative care for each of those diseases as you need to focus for the exam. So let's start with multiple sclerosis. Remember that multiple sclerosis is a degenerative nerve disease that is caused by demyelination of the nerve fibers in the central nervous system. So we're talking about the brain and the spinal cord and multiple sclerosis. And what happens is T-cells migrate into the central nervous system and start uh, causing this degradation, demyelination of the myelin sheath that surrounds those uh, neuron axons. And remember that the myelin sheath is really important in transmitting signals that go down that axon and then get transmitted to the next neuron. When those myelin sheath are not um, present because of demyelination, nervous impulses have a very difficult time and sometimes it's impossible for them to be uh, transmitted to the next neuron. And what happens is that that then impacts and causes disability that ranges in severity as multiple sclerosis progresses. The most common type of multiple sclerosis is relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis where a person would have um, a period of exacerbation where they have demyelination of that axon of the myelin sheath um, that then goes into remission and during that time of remission where there's no more attack on those myelin sheath there's some regeneration of the myelin sheath and so um, during that initial occurrence they would experience some mild disability maybe they are getting fatigued maybe they're having some urinary issues some sexual dysfunction um, that would then improve as the remyelination occurs. But then the next period or re, uh, relapse, um, another you know word for this would be exacerbation occurs, and those myelin sheath that haven't fully remyelinated become degraded again, and so another episode of demyelination occurs. And then you go into a remission period again where you have some repair, and then maybe a few months or a few years later, you have another exacerbation where demyelination occurs. And so each period causes increased disability. And after three or four exacerbations, you're really looking at pretty severe or substantial disability that maybe you aren't able to recover from. And so with each subsequent episode of inflammation, uh, progressive damage occurs. And really that causes uh, progressive disability as well. Now the end result is that you end up with plaque developed, these sclerotic plaques developed on these uh, axon, neuron axons. And then uh, eventually during an exacerbation, another severe exacerbation, what might happen is that that axon becomes completely sheared or um, torn apart because of how sclerosed it has become. Multiple sclerosis has a very wide, wide range of symptoms. It really just develops or depends on where the inflammation is happening in the body. But remember that the key here is there's generally a progression of symptoms where they go from mild to very severe as these exacerbation periods develop. And it's characterized, multiple sclerosis really is characterized by remissions and exacerbations. And so an exacerbation may last a month or two 
and followed by six months where you feel great. And then um, maybe your next episode, you get even more severe symptoms. And then again, another remission period where you start recovering from that. So diagnostics with multiple sclerosis, when people do start having uh, signs and symptoms of multiple sclerosis would be an MRI because you can actually see um, plaques in the central nervous system develop. You can also do a CSF analysis to find those antibodies um, inside of the central nervous system that are kind of hanging out in the cerebral spinal fluid. Remember that the criteria for diagnosis is evidence of two inflammatory or exacerbation periods, right? So exacerbation would be the inflammatory demyelination. Um, that's happened in at least two locations. And so that would mean that there's two separate incidences of symptoms at two different times. Um, and then all other causes of those symptoms have been ruled out. So fatigue and you know urinary incontinence have been ruled out or bowel dysfunction have been ruled out. Um, so they might have to do a lot more diagnostics to rule out those other causes before they are able to diagnose MS. Remember that during periods of exacerbation, you're really going to be focused on getting control of the infl- inflammation that's causing the demyelination. And so that's why we would give systemic corticosteroids. We're really trying to get on top of the inflammation that's happening. But what you wouldn't see is someone with multiple sclerosis who's chronically on corticosteroids. Remember, corticosteroids have many side effects. It uh, increases your risk of um, infection quite a bit because you are uh, suppressing the immune system. But it's also going to set you up for things like osteoporosis and Cushing, uh, Cushing syndrome, um, water and di- water retention, sodium retention and electrolyte imbalances, um, as well as type 2 diabetes. So we don't want to keep people on corticosteroids for very long, but you would expect the patient to be uh, managed with corticosteroids. And then even they can see, you might see immunosuppressants being given during periods of exacerbations and immunomodulators. Now, in periods where they are in a remission, but they're still dealing with these uh, disabilities that have been caused by the disease, so they don't have acute inflammation occurring, but they do have residual um, symptoms and disability from the exacerbation periods, that's when you're going to see more of the symptom management. So depending on what their symptoms are, that's how you determine the medication and uh, treatment regimen. So um, these people really have a lot of issues with immobility. That That's a very common issue with multiple sclerosis. And then additionally, you may also see constipation and bladder issues with bladder control. And remember that this is, the teaching here is very important. They really need to avoid infection. So anything like uh, flu season, uh, COVID, um, there are other triggers that they need to be taught about. So this happens to people a lot, women who are in childbearing age. And pregnancy may actually improve their symptoms and may actually, they are unlikely to experience an exacerbation during pregnancy. But what will happen is um, the immediate postpartum period, they'll, they're very likely to experience an exacerbation. And so pregnancy, they need a lot of teaching because this is, uh, they are in childbearing age and a lot of people do want to have babies. And um, if you have multiple sclerosis, you need to be taught that you're very likely to experience an exacerbation afterwards and that could have some long-term uh, disability associated with it. So 
prevent those complications from developing by uh, preventing infection and doing really good teaching with your patients. So let's talk about Parkinson's disease now. Remember that um, in Parkinson's disease, you have a disorder where your dopamine is not being produced by the substantia nigra in the brain. And what that causes is an imbalance between dopamine and acetylcholine, which that balance is very, very important in um, controlling movements. And so when you have an imbalance of dopamine and acetylcholine, what happens is that you have disturbed movement, movements that can't be controlled, involuntary movements. And it, in, interestingly enough, occurs in some very specific and predictable ways, unlike MS. And so Parkinson's disease is a chronic progressive neurodegenerative disorder caused by degeneration of dopamine-producing neurons in the substantia nigra of the midbrain. What happens, it's characterized by tremors, and remember these can be very fine tremors. You might see Parkinson's develop in your handwriting and uh, by changing your handwriting quite substantially. And then um, eventually those tremors will get so severe that you aren't able to hold a toothbrush steady, hold a spoon steady, and keep food on a fork. You'll also experience rigidity, and remember that rigidity is increased muscle tone. That's kind of like an involuntary loss to uh, relax your muscles. Um, it can also cause slow initiation of movements and poor execution of movements, which, which is called bradykinesia. And then remember, postural instability is another characteristic of Parkinson's disease, where you have kind of a stooped over posture, um, you have this propulsion and um, sort of this forward tilt to your posture. Your face, people with Parkinson's, their face will kind of have a loss of affect or a flat affect. Um, people might say they have a blank face. Um, their speech can have a very slow and monotonous slurred speech. And again, that's because of the loss of control of their uh, the facial muscles. And then their gait is short and shuffling. That means that they don't have normal footsteps. They'll have a shuffling gait with very um, short, short uh, footsteps. And that really puts them at increased fall risk. The definitive diagnosis, there is no way to definitively diagnose Parkinson's, uh, but we will put them on Parkinson's drug once they start presenting the trap symptoms. And if they have a positive response to those uh, anti-Parkinsonians or what another word for it is dopaminergic drugs, then they have, that's how we would confirm the diagnosis. You may also see a CT and MRI uh, ordered, but that's just to rule out any other causes of these symptoms like stroke or brain tumor. So the medications to know here are your cinnamon, and that is the levodopa with the carb carbidopa uh, combination. Levodopa really increases the amount of dopamine that's available in the central nervous system. Remember that we can't give IV dopamine, although that is a medication that we give in the ICU. Dopamine is a, a intensive care critical medication, but it won't cross the blood-brain barrier, and so this isn't a helpful medication to give in Parkinson's. Levodopa, on the other hand, does cross the blood-brain barrier and it allows more dopamine to be available. However, 
you have um, these enzymes that will degrade that dopamine. And so the carbidopa inhibits those enzymes. And that's why cinnamon is a much better medication than just levodopa by itself because cinnamon will increase the amount of dopamine available while also inhibiting the enzymes that break down dopamine naturally in our central nervous system. You may also see dopamine agonists and dopamine receptor agonists. And what that means is it is not dopamine um, in a true sense, but it binds to dopamine receptors to make it seem like there's more dopamine and to create more controlled movements. Um, you can also see surgical therapy being, being done at Parkinson's disease, but I don't need you to know about that for this exam. Um, nursing care looks like really addressing the fall risk because remember that they have that shuffling gait and issues with posture. If a person with Parkinson's begins to fall, they have um, the bradykinesia, which is in the akinesia, which is poor and um, slow movements, poor control and slow movements. And so what that means is if, is if they start falling, they really are not going to be able to stop themselves and they may get very hurt. So we want to remove obstacles, rugs, cords. We want to make sure that they're wearing um, something on their feet at all times. Uh, we wouldn't want them wearing like house shoes, but uh, grippy socks might be good. And then shoes that are tied well. Really, you wouldn't want um, them to be wearing shoes with ties like shoelaces because if that shoe becomes untied and they aren't, they don't um, notice it right away, they could really trip on a shoelace and that could cause them to fall and have a major uh, risk. So um, I would honestly say adaptive clothing is so helpful and Velcroed shoes, although um, you know people don't like that very much, it really helps a lot here because you're not going to have, you're going to completely eliminate any risk for them to fall on a shoelace or trip over a shoelace. Risk for aspiration is likely to develop as Parkinson's progresses because they have such poor control over their swallowing and the muscles in their face and that um, kind of control swallowing and eating. So they need thick uh, foods, foods that are appropriately thick. Now you can always add thickener to any fluid that's thin. So coffee, water, um, you know, and it, it will turn it into a, a pudding consistency. Um, you want to make sure though that any food that you give them is appetizing and remember that protein uh, can impair levodopa absorption. And so we want to space out, um, give them high protein meals, but not whenever they're taking levodopa. And so we need to be thoughtful about that. Maybe they're taking their protein in the morning and eating protein in the morning and then they get um, their levodopa in the evening or vice versa. And then six small meals a day. And again, this is something that we would really want high calorie foods that are going to prevent any risk for aspiration. So appropriate thickness. Remember that there's all sorts of adaptive clothing, adaptive devices that we can uh, equip these patients with so that we are... Um, optimizing independence and making sure that we are not doing everything for them or that their caregivers aren't feeding them, dressing them, brushing their teeth because we need to prevent that loss of independence. And so we can equip them with adaptive devices to facilitate that as much as possible. So let's talk about myosinthia gravis. Remember that myosinthia gravis is an autoimmune disease that of the peripheral nervous system. And what's happening is that the immune system, the immune cells are attacking 
the uh, acetylcholine, it's actually blocking acetylcholine from getting to the receptors, the ACH receptors in the neuromuscular synapsis. So a impulse can travel all the way down, but once it hits the muscles at that neuromuscular synapsis, ACH is being blocked by antibodies that are being produced and immune cells that are being produced in those areas. But Eventually, those immune cells also start attacking the ACH receptors, and so eventually you have no ACH receptors left to pick up on any impulses. And so this uh, starts by manifesting with some weakness that is not present in the mornings when the person is rested and um, you know hasn't been using those muscles, but as the day progresses and as they use those muscles, especially in the face and in the neck, the jaw, like that kind of area, the eyes, they experience um, gradually increasing muscle weakness throughout the day that then it improves overnight when they aren't using those anymore. And then in the morning, it feels better. And then as the day progresses, it gets worse again. And so the initial manifestations are weakness of the eyes and eyelids. And so they'll have that bilateral ptosis and the diplopia. And the diplopia is being caused by um, weakness of the extraocular muscles, where you actually start seeing double vision because um, your muscles can't, or your eyes aren't remaining in alignment because of the extraocular muscle weakness. But then they'll eventually lose some facial mobility and have issues with expressions. And then that will end up progressing into difficulty chewing and swallowing food and speaking. Someone with myasinthia graphis would have a very difficult time lecturing or talking for long periods of time or even um, chewing up really chewy foods like steak or chicken, things that would take just kind of more um, in terms of mastication. And so that can end up having um, causing issues with swallowing and they may end up needing um, like softer foods as well. Like things like mashed potatoes would be a much better option than steak. Um, so you're kind of going for that thickness of food as this progresses and as they end up having, um, you know, more muscle weakness. It may also be that, um, you know, if you give them softer foods and increase their protein content and, or keep them on a normal protein comment content and uh, maintain their caloric intake with softer foods, then that would be a really good way to preserve their overall, uh, ability to use their muscles throughout the day. Um, <clears throat> so you want to teach them those energy conservation techniques, like a protein shake would be a much better idea than a chicken breast. Um, okay, so remember that in this um, disease, this disorder, they can actually uh, have a sudden onset of muscle weakness that impairs swallowing and breathing, and that's called a myasthenic crisis. And when they're having that myasthenic crisis, that would they probably be admitted to the hospital because ultimately they are having issues with breathing and may need mechanical ventilation. And that's where you would see the plasmapheresis where we're cleaning the plasma of any antibodies that are causing this damage. But we could also give IVIG um, and those both of those could improve um, and are only used for myasthenic crisis. Otherwise, you're giving anticholinergic drugs to prolong um, acetylcholine in the neuromuscular junction. And then you may also see here use of corticosteroids being given. Um, 
So instead of giving them daily, we might alternate days so that we're preventing Cushing syndrome from developing and just doing as low as dose as possible to maintain and manage symptoms um, while still promoting health and preventing side effects of corticosteroid use. Again, you may also see immunosuppressants here since this is ultimately an autoimmune disease. So as a review, Guillain-Barre syndrome is a acute, rapidly progressing ascending polyneuropathy. And what that means is that you have an inflammatory process occurring um, that's causing demyelination of the peripheral nerves. So we are talking about the peripheral nervous system in this situation, not the central nervous system as much. Um, and this can be triggered by a viral infection that's kind of the most common um, thing where you have maybe it's Epstein-Barr virus, maybe it's some other kind of viral infection, and it causes your body to, uh, your, your immune system to attack your peripheral nerves, causing a demyelination. And so what happens is these people will wake up feeling some paresthesia in their feet bilaterally. And then eventually that paresthesia kind of makes its way up to the feet, the calves, and then kind of just continues ascending. Um, meanwhile, their feet are becoming completely numb. And then that eventually uh, turns into complete paralysis. And so it's a progression of symptoms, but also um, an ascension of symptoms as well. And the faster that these people can seek treatment and initiate treatment, the better, because if treatment is delayed, um, the polyneuropathy can ascend all the way to the respiratory system and they will experience respiratory failure because of the paralysis that will develop from the demyelination. And so remember that the uh, treatment here most often is plasmapheresis where we're actually removing the uh, circulating antibodies by cleaning out the plasma. We can also, you'll see IVIG being given. Um, and there's still not a lot understood about Guillain-Barre syndrome. There's not much understood about why these treatments are effective. But that is what we'll do to um, kind of stop the progression of GBS. Meanwhile, now here's the deal. This will, um, Guillain-Barre syndrome should improve. It will take a while because what we're waiting for is the nerves that have been impacted to be remyelinated. And so the myelin sheaths have to redevelop on the axons of every nerve that has developed for the symptoms to completely resolve. And so we really are looking at months before they can start wiggling their toes and moving their feet. And then um, it will kind of, uh, remyelination will occur at the same kind of progression as demyelination. And so typically we'll, it will have an ascending um, remyelinatory effect. And so they'll regain function in the same way. So um, in the meantime, they will most likely need a long-term mechanical ventilation. Acutely, you would definitely see these people getting intubated with an endotracheal tube. And then um, the longer that they're, you know, needing treatment, we'll stabilize them and put them on a mechanical ventilator through a tracheostomy. So that's a surgical airway um, through the, trach the trachea. In the meantime, you are preventing complications of the disease and of immobility. And so we know that these people are not moving. They're generally completely paralyzed except for their face. They, sometimes they can talk. Sometimes they can't. Um, most of the time they can blink their eyes and, you know, see. So um, 
we are otherwise they're they're paralyzed so they're high risk for pressure ulcers they're high risk for blood clots dvts um you'd want to do all the normal stuff that you would do to prevent complications of immobility utis kidney stones um all of those things are still true uh even like you know you have a lot of calcium metabolism issues um so the other thing is because usually this impacts the uh, muscles that control swallowing, they may actually also experience issues with impaired swallowing. And so you would really most likely see them on um, NG tube feedings. There's no reason that they can't have NG tube feedings. Um, that would definitely be the preferred method of feeding instead of, um, you know, like TPN. Because TPN is really hard on the liver, and um, that's a pretty invasive treatment. And so if we can feed them through their NG tube, that's really going to help um, just generally uh, optimize GI function. Okay, so spinal cord injuries. There's a lot of different reasons people can experience spinal cord injuries, and there's a lot of different types of injuries. They're characterized generally by the level of injury, sometimes by the type of injury that has happened. Um, you know, you can have a primary injury or secondary injury, but you can also um, classify them as like from a me mechanism of injury, flexion, hyperextension, flexion rotation, or extension rotation. The level of injury is typically going to cause the um, degree of disability. And so whether or not the person has tetraplegia or quadriplegia, um, that's, those are the same things, or paraplegia, which is just a lower extremity paralysis. So um, the higher the injury, the worse the disability is going to be, the impending complications are going to be because of what the disability is determined by what is below the spinal cord, right? So if you have an injury to the spinal cord, everything below that injury is now no longer accessible. Um, so the reason a cervical spinal cord injury is so bad is because basically everything is innervated below. All of your musculoskeletal system below your neck is innervated below your cervical spine, where, you know, you have your, um, uh, accessory spinal nerves coming off and then your heart your lungs your stomach your entire GI system your kidneys your bladder your sexual organs everything is innervated below the spinal cord and so that's definitely the worst degree of uh, disability typically if you have a spinal cord injury you would expect tetraplegia or quadriplegia same thing um, you would definitely you could definitely see paralysis of the respiratory muscles including the diaphragm, which means that the patient's not able to breathe on their own and they will need mechanical long-term vent ventilatory support, generally through a tracheotomy um, and long-term mechanical ventilation. You'll see all sorts of sympathetic nervous system dysfunction, especially at first, because these patients are a lot more likely to experience neurogenic shock and remember, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the sympathetic nervous system kind of runs. It's like a, um, you know, it, it's all innervated back there. And so the patients will lose their ability to maintain vascular tone. And then blood is now distributed all over their body instead of being able to make it back up to the heart. Their cardiac output drops, and that can be a big deal. Another thing is besides impaired immobility or impaired mobility, 
you would expect to see neurogenic bladder and bowel because of the the degree of injury here, the, you know, um, where the injuries occur in the level. Um, for a thoracic injury, you're definitely going to have like, what you would typically see is loss of sensation below the nipples. You may see tetraplegia if it's a high T injury, like T1 or T2. If it's a low T injury, like T6 or lower, then that may just, um, cause paraplegia. And anything above a T6 or higher injury is more likely to cause respiratory, sympathetic nervous system dysfunction, and neurogenic bladder and bowel, just like a um, cervical injury. Now, here's the deal. That T6 part is very, very important because if you have an injury um, above T6, and you end up getting neurogenic bladder and bowel and you can't really tell whenever you need to evacuate your bladder or bowel, then what's going to happen is you're going to really be set up for that autonomic dysreflexia or other word for it is hyperreflexia. And what that is is where you have a you know severe headache, your blood pressure goes through the roof, and you have bradycardia with a really full bounding pulse. And basically, you can um, die from that. That can be a life-threatening medical emergency. Um, okay, back to level of injuries. Remember that lumbar and um, sacral injuries, those are like pretty, um, you know, that's where you're going to see less severe disability. Although for someone with a lumbar issue, paraplegia is still a really big deal. Um, you can still have neurogenic bladder and bowel with a lumbar spinal cord injury. Just remember that part of the reason um, the T6 is so important, that level of injury, is because it's kind of, it activates the sympathetic nervous system above the level of injury and the autonomic nervous system below, or the parasympathetic nervous system below the level of injury. And those two things are really combating against one another. So if you're taking care of a patient with a spinal cord injury, all, right away you're thinking ABCs, maintain that SpO2 above 90%. No matter what, we're going to you know, apply supplemental oxygen. If that's not working, then we're going to intubate them. We're going to do whatever it takes to maintain a uh, systolic blood pressure above 90 millimeters of mercury, and that's because we really, really care about cerebral blood flow and making sure that we're avoiding an anoxic brain injury in the event that neurogenic shock does occur. Um, and that's why you would wanna go ahead and establish two large bore IV catheters. And we're, when we're talking about large bore, we're really just talking about anything 18 gauge or larger. Um, immobilize that spine, you would definitely do a C collar, cervical spine uh, to stabilize the cervical spine. And then assess for any other injuries because generally a spinal cord injury is not the only thing that's happening. It's generally because of some other type of trauma that could cause definitely other injuries. Um, and then, you know, monitor vital signs, monitor the level of consciousness, and then just keep the patient stabilized. Make sure that they are oxygenated. Um, look at their urine output. That's a, urine output is a really, really great indicator of cardiac output. And so as soon as you start seeing that urine output drop below 30 milliliters an hour, you know that the kidneys are not getting good perfusion. And if they're not getting good perfusion, there's not going to be urine output. And so that's like your ding, ding, ding. One of the early ways that we can tell if the organs are getting enough perfusion. Um, so that can be really important. 
Okay, and then let's just review autonomic hyperreflexia. Remember that this is a systolic blood pressure that's above 300 millimeters of mercury. Elevated systolic blood pressure is going to be high. It's going to be high. And that's really one of the main things that causes, you know, that this could be life-threatening is because they could stroke out. If they have an aneurysm in their body, they could definitely blow that aneurysm. They're also experiencing bradycardia. Um, where they have, you know, a heart rate that's in the 30s or 40s. And so if you're seeing a systolic blood pressure, anything over 200 is remarkable. And a heart rate in the 30s or 40s, that's also remarkable. They're also going to be complaining of a throbbing headache. And what's happening here is you have vasodilation because above the level of injury is you're getting sympathetic nervous system activation. And so it's causing vasodilation in the brain. Um, and with that systolic blood pressure being as high as it is, you're getting a ton of, uh, intracranial pressure. And so your intracranial pressure is actually really high. You're also seeing diaphoresis and flesh skin above that level of injury. Whereas below the level of injury, you may not be seeing that you may actually see some cool skin. Um, and then remember nausea, anxiety are all common signs and symptoms of hyperreflexia. If your patient is complaining all of a sudden of a throbbing headache and you see that they're diaphoretic, you need to immediately take a blood pressure. If that blood pressure is elevated and that heart rate is low, then you're thinking autonomic hyperreflexia. What is causing this right away? Elevate the head of the bed to 45 degree angles and you're looking for a cause and your causes are most likely to be distension of the bladder, or distension of the bowel. So if they have a Foley catheter in place, you would definitely check that Foley to make sure any kinks are worked out, that it's patent, it's open. If there's any clogs or anything like that in the line of the Foley, like the tubing, then that could cause distension of bladder. And um, so you want to check that out. If, there's, if it's a clog, you want to get that clog out ASAP. And then if they don't have a Foley catheter, you would want to straight cath them and get all of the urine out of their bladder as well. And then, of course, if it's not the bladder, if it could be the bowel, then you're doing a digital rectal exam right away and manually evacuating anything that could be causing this autonomic hyperreflexia. If it's neither one of those things, you're looking at bed sheets, you're looking at anything in the bed that could be um, creating pressure below the level of injury. Um, maybe turn your patient and see what's going on because something is causing this and triggering that sympathetic nervous system reaction above the level of injury. Um, but it's generally caused by something below the level of injury. So it's a very interesting uh, complication that develops in spinal cord injury patients. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you have any questions about chronic neuromusculoskeletal disorders or the content that we talked about, please just feel free to email me and let me know.